there, guys. Welcome to the Encore Podcast. I'm Chris McCoy. Gab is here with me, as always. Hi, Gab. Hi. How's it going? It's going well. We're going to be talking with an author who graduated, uh, not with you, but from the same school, the University of Pittsburgh. She's now living in the UK, in England, and she writes horror stories, books, the kind that will make you want to sleep with a light on. (laughs) (laughs) We'll be talking with Tori Bovolino in just a little bit. But first, yesterday, now when we recorded this, it was Monday, May the 2nd, and yesterday was the Broad Street Run, and you were part of that. Tell me about your day yesterday. I was part of that. So I originally signed up to run the Broad Street Run in January of 2020, never having run before in my life more than maybe three miles. And I really focused in and I was ready to train and I won't go over the history of what happened as of March, 2020, but needless to say, the race did not happen that year. And then it was postponed again last year. So I was very excited because this was the first time that I was getting to run this race on the first weekend in May proper. I think that helped a little bit with the fact that I had to get up at 5.50. (laughs) (laughs) I was in Philadelphia where the race takes place and it's just one long 10 mile stretch down Broad Street, hence the name. Um, We started in North Philadelphia by the high school. By Temple University too, right? Oh, which Uh, It's a little bit north of Temple. Yeah. Yeah. So we passed Temple around mile two or three, I want to say. So Mm -hmm. a little bit above that. Um, But we started up by the high school and then we came straight down. And normally it ends in the Navy Yard this year. It was just a little bit different. We ran by Citizens Bank Park and ended up finishing right next to the Eagles practice facility. It's known as the biggest 10 mile race in the country, which was super cool. I've never run in a race that big. There was about 27,000 of us. Um, it was, it was difficult, but I love that challenge. Sometimes I really hate running race day. is just a completely different feeling. There's so many people around you and everyone's really excited and everyone's happy to be there. And the spectators, even though they were sort of discouraged from coming, the people that did come out were amazing. The signs that they make cheering on strangers that they don't know. It's just so like uplifting and positive. Um, it's a little hard not to get choked out by the end of it because your legs hurt so bad and everyone's being so nice that the combination of the two <laughs> just makes you want to tear up a little bit, but yeah, so that was my day yesterday. It was a beautiful day. The sun came out for about the second half of it, I would say. And I did come away with a little bit of sunburn, but totally worth it. Did you have a big pasta dinner the night before? Do you carbo load for these, uh, for this 10 mile race? I do. Um, I try to build it up throughout the week gradually rather than a lot the night before. Although that protein and carb is very important the night before I would, I'm not ready to eat a lot of food at five 50 in the morning. So that's where I get my energy from. Now I'm going to ask you a question. You don't have to answer if you don't want, what was your time? I did it in the time I wanted to do it. Was there a point in that 10 miles and where was it? Was there a time when you thought, why did I do this? It sounded like a good idea when I signed up, when I went to get my penny, but uh, (laughs) did you feel that way at all? Yeah. When the gun went off. (laughs) (laughs) That's an honest answer. (laughs) No, I have run races in the past where it's uh, it rotates between being like uphill and then like going downhill, but then you're going back uphill again. 
And this one, it was just like, most of the incline was at the beginning, which I was pretty thankful for because it was just three tough miles then in my mind, rather than having to brace myself to kind of go back and forth. So those first three miles, I was definitely having moments of like, I thought this was supposed to be flat. What the hell is this <laughs> I'm looking at with races of that length, 10 miles, half marathon uh, and marathon. Not that I've done a marathon, but for people who have, there's definitely moments where you're like, I am honestly in disbelief that I have so much left to do when it feels like I've been running for so long already, but really finding a mental fortitude just, just sort of push through that makes it all that much more worthwhile at the end. Uh, my daughter, Lauren ran in this race too. And my son-in-law Lucas. And I understand that at one point you actually kind of caught up with them and maybe surprised them a little bit. <laughs> we were all in the same crowd, but there was about 60,000 people in the crowd with us. So we just weren't anywhere near each other. And at the beginning of the run, I was just trying to keep a slow pace and build And I just saw this person like cut in front of me and I looked at the back of them and I was like, that person looks really familiar. And then I like pushed myself a little bit further and I realized that it was Lucas. And I said, Hey, you know, what's up? And he gave me a hug, which was very impressive because we were moving. So, you know, I don't, (laughs) he said, (laughs) he he, he said, uh, Oh, it's great to see you. Lauren is, and then turned around and said somewhere, (laughs) because I guess. (laughs) They had lost each other at that point, but they both had on brightly colored clothing. So he, he told me what she was wearing so I could look for her. And then right after Lucas took off because he's much taller and faster than I am. So I said, please continue ahead. Um, But once he took off, I actually looked to my left and I saw Lauren, but she was just too far ahead. And I was like, I'm not going to catch up with her. But then around mile eight, I was making my way along and I saw Lauren and I finally had the speed to catch up with her after about a half mile. So um, she gave me a hug too. I, like I said, I'm very impressed with everybody giving hugs because like, I was just like, if the feet stop, like that's going to be the end for me. So like, we got to keep going. <laughs> but yeah, I got to run with Lauren for a little bit. Lucas, I couldn't keep up with, but Lauren, I did run with her for a little while. Well, look, a nice Epsom salts, warm bath would, would feel so good right about now. Yeah. Um, my parents opted for a mimosa for me afterwards, which also yeah. did the trick and yeah. just is not doing the trick today. <laughs> so. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, I have nothing but admiration for you for doing that. I, you know, in my younger days, I would, if there was a broad street run back when I was a runner, which when I was in my twenties and there wasn't, I would have been inclined to do it too. But uh, boy, those days are so far over, but it looked like so much fun. We were watching the whole thing on TV, you know, 27,500 people, I think ran on Sunday at the broad street run and just about every one of them at some point had a smile on their face which is not something I associate with uh, shin splints and, you know, that, <laughs> that sort of thing, smiling through your shin splints. So uh, yeah, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. The one funny um, image I can leave our listeners with is just that they had cameras everywhere because they had discouraged spectators. So they were filming it live for people to watch from home. And I thought I had saw all the cameras as I was going along. So I made sure I wasn't making any faces or anything like that. And I think I just missed one. So I was like, really biting down and like really slurping down some water from my water backpack. And then I like turned to my right just to see the camera right directly in my face. And I was like, <laughs> neat. Um, let us know. <laughs> Tweet us a picture because I'm sure I looked great. In that <laughs> hey, uh, listen, we're going to take a quick break here on the 
Encore podcast, and we'll come back and we'll talk with author Tori Bubbleman. <laughs> Hey, everybody, and welcome back. Today with us, we have author Tori Bovolino, who has already released one novel called The Devil Makes Three and has a second one on the way. And we will let her tell you about that in just a little bit. But before that, hey, Tori, how's it going? Hey, I'm good. How are you? Doing well. Thanks for joining us today. We're really excited to talk about the novel that you've written, the novel you have coming out. Do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about your first debut novel? Yeah, of course. Just disclaimer, it is allergy season. So sorry if I'm really like sinal. Um, yeah, we're familiar with that on this podcast. Don't worry. <laughs> it's, just, it's great. We love a bit of vocal fry. So The Devil Makes Three is my first book. It came out in August of 2021. Both of them are young adult horror. So if you're into that, that might appeal to you. It's about two teenagers who find a library book in their school library, accidentally release a demon from within it, and then must do everything in their power to capture it once more. And then my next book coming out in June, which is like six weeks away, very scary. It's called Not Good for Maidens, and that is a gothic horror retelling of Christina Rossetti's Goblin Market, the poem set in contemporary York, England. Now that you have a novel under your belt, do you feel a little bit more prepared to release the second one or is, are you still nervous? It's kind of a weird one. All of the stuff that actually goes into the process, like the actual writing of the novel and editing, basically all of that happened before the first book came out. It's it's nice to kind of know what's coming from the, oh, this is all the release stuff perspective. I think even when I was still working on the book, I was just going in with like, okay, this might be fine, maybe, but it, it does, it does feel nice going to the second one for release stuff, kind of knowing how it works. We, I guess we should mention that you're a University of Pittsburgh graduate, but you now reside in England. Yes. So I did. I am from Pittsburgh and I did go to Pitt. I then moved to London. I did my master's degree at Royal Holloway University of London. And I am just finishing out my PhD. Same school. <laughs> yeah. Thank God. Over, almost done. I'm curious about this, the young adult horror genre. Because uh, mm -hmm. when I was a young person, I, I would read everything that Stephen King put out. And it seemed like he put out three or four books a year. I could not wait to get my hands on them. Did you find yourself doing that too, like reading a lot of horror novels as you were growing up and maybe even still to this day? Okay, so I definitely was reading Stephen King as a kid, like way sooner than I was probably ready for it or that it was appropriate. I remember my dad sitting me down and having a conversation and being like, this is not okay for an 11 year old, but they let me check out the library. So as far as I was concerned, it was fine. So I read a lot of Stephen King growing up and all the way through high school, I still read as much as possible. When I was younger, more like our generation, I read a lot of R.L. Stein um, and those kinds of things. It was like very spooky middle grade series. As an adult, I've branched out a little bit more. I've been trying to keep up. It's a little bit harder now kind of with everything else going on, but I try to keep up as much as possible with all the new horror that's coming out. But I've really loved the recent things by Stephen Graham Jones, like The Only Good Indians. Sylvia Moreno-Garcia has had a Mexican Gothic, which is really good as well. So I'm, I'm trying to keep up with what's relevant, what's new with the kids these days. But also I am a horror novel enthusiast, but horror films scare me to death. 
<laughs> I am the person like watching through my fingers. It's terrible. So I can't really watch horror movies that well, but I love reading spooky books. I love being scared by books and that feeling of like, I don't want to turn off the lights at night. I want to keep going. I have to know how this ends. I just um, actually read Mexican Gothic. So it's funny that you mentioned that. I am a huge scary cat. So I applaud you for not only actively <laughs> seeking out these horror books, but wanting to write them yourself. I guess the thing that I'm curious about is in the TV industry, a lot of what they say is don't watch what you want to write. So like if you want to be a comedy writer, try not to watch so much comedy because it'll just it kind of affect the way that you write, maybe not in a good way. Um, so I know that you were saying that you sort of devour the genre. What is your writing process like? Do you just enjoy it so much or do you find yourself pulling inspiration or does it just get you in the right headspace to be able to write your own stories? So I don't, I don't know anything TV related. I've never heard that before, but that's very funny because I think the number one bit advice that I mean, I give to people and that people have always given to me is read everything that's possible for your genre, because then you can kind of see how tropes play out but also how to kind of avoid pitfalls so you don't want to you don't only want to read things that you like you want to read things that you don't like because then you'll avoid those things that you don't like but again reading is such like uniquely taste-based my writing process I really kind of just start with almost an image or a concept for The Devil Makes Three I was working at a library um, on Pitt's campus it's the Frick Fine Arts Library oh, yes. It is a bit spooky because mm-hmm. it does operate kind of on a closed stack situation. So especially during the summer, you might be the only person or one of two people in the building and there's like five floors of stacks. So you might be way far in the basement and then you might just hear something. And that was always terrifying. I would wear headphones so I wouldn't like listen to anything happening around me. But I specifically remember noise canceling headphones and so just like tapping me on the shoulder. I like nearly died. Um, (laughs) I think with my process, it comes from things that genuinely scare me. And then I base most of my stories on either folklore or literature that I really admire, because I think that's kind of a good grounding thing of familiarity. Devil Makes Three is based off of old German Faust legends, which is like people discovering the devil's book and how to figure out what to do next um not good for maidens it's based off of christina rossetti's poetry um mixed with old english legends and folk tales and folk songs as well but i feel like having that kind of touchstone really helps me ground what i'm doing but i just find that that kind of helps me conceptualize and then the main thing that i kind of take away from writing is that i'm not necessarily a good first draft writer I'm strongest when I have something to build upon. So it's okay if I write something quickly that's not necessarily good. As the kids say, you can't edit a blank page. So (laughs) I kind of go back to that with my process itself in that I try and make sure that I have something to work upon, some sort of foundation. If it's not very good, it's okay. I can change it. I've done major revisions before. I know that's something I'm comfortable doing, but I'm more comfortable reworking something that exists than creating something from scratch. First of all, I would imagine in your mind, when you set to write a novel, you must have a beginning, a middle and an end in mind, or do you wait until you see where you're actually going 
And then do you have an editor? And does that editor drive you crazy as you submit pages? I think for process stuff, it is kind of a mix. I am very much usually outline driven. So before I go into a project, the first thing I do is I write a full outline of everything that I want to happen. If I divert from little bits of the outline, that's okay. But yeah, the main kind of arc of the beginning, middle, and end generally tend to stay the same. I don't really overhaul that as I go. I like to know that going in. And if I do change that in subsequent versions, then that's okay. It helps me to not worry about what's going to happen next, because that means I'm actually producing something that's going to be completed. The way it works in the little bit of publishing where I'm in, it really depends on the project. So for my first book, I have kind of stages. So I write a book and then usually I send it to people, beta readers, friends, other authors who I know, and we have a good relationship and they'll read and they'll tell me, oh, this needs to change (laughs) or like, okay, this is fine. And then from there, it will go to my agents and they'll tell me the same thing. Like, okay, this is what we need to work on. And then eventually it ends up with an editor or my editor. It kind of depends on what version of the process you're doing. With my editor I work with now, her name's Lauren and she's wonderful. She will probably not read something until it's been through a couple of stages, just because I don't want to send something to her that's not polished. I don't want to send her something that's like riddled with typos or where it just does not make sense. So for example, my second book, um, Not Good for Maidens, when I originally wrote it, it's two different perspectives happening 17 years apart and in the original draft one perspective started at the end of the story and was going backwards and then one perspective started at the beginning of the story was going forwards I had three or four beta readers for it which is the first round of readers and they came back and they said I had no idea what was going on none of this made sense I was like right (laughs) we're not gonna do that version then it's now two timelines that go actually chronologically forwards But things like that, that it's like, this is fundamentally not working. I don't want it to be my editor telling me that. Honestly, when you're writing a book, sometimes you have six months to go from finished draft to actual finished draft and anything massively time consuming or just not fundamentally not working like that. I would rather have my time to do it rather than submitting it and then having that play into the, you know, big ticking time bomb of being on deadline or you have the book coming out in June and then you have another one coming out at the end of the year. Did you write all of these stories around the same period of time? It seems like you're really getting a lot of work done in such a short period of time. Have these been projects that have sort of developed over the years on like a longer timeline each? So the one coming at the end of the year, thank goodness it's not just me. Oh, that one's an anthology. So that's a collection of 10 different stories. I did edit the collection. So I did put in, a lot of time (laughs) you know getting everybody together being like hey let's write stories and then selling the project I feel like I'm never working hard enough I'm never doing enough it's imposter syndrome that's all it is all about that yeah (laughs) yeah thing we're familiar with on this podcast yeah (laughs) we love a bit of imposter syndrome for writing I think it just goes back to that whole thing of like You need to figure out what works for you and how to model that process. And I know, like, I'm I'm, I'm a fast writer, but it's just because 
I've been doing it for so long, but I think that's so much of it is that um, I started seriously writing when I was 12 in the online landscape, but I basically wrote every day, thousands of words. But basically when I was a teenager, like every spare bit of time I spent was writing. So I started really seriously pursuing a career in being an author um, before I went to college. And so it felt to me like, I wanted all of these things and I was working so hard on these things and they just weren't happening. But realistically, it was like, bro, you're like 19. <laughs> it's fine. Um, I wish somebody would have told me that. But, you know, by the time I did sign with my agents, I kind of had to let go of some of the more some of the projects that I've been clinging to almost as like a defense mechanism because that was what I knew. So I think it was helpful to branch out and work on things that maybe I didn't perfectly know what exactly was going to go on. Maybe they were based off of things that I was experiencing as I was growing up rather than things that I'd experienced as a child. I don't prescribe to this idea that a lot of people say like you have to treat it as a career. And I thought that in the past, but I think to produce a very kind of high volume, you have to understand your own limitations. And I've gotten better at that as I've gotten older. And yeah, I have put out a lot of work especially in the last 18 months but before that there was like three years of straight you know grind and it's been really difficult but really necessary to kind of say okay we are not going to write this month because we need to figure out a what we're doing b you have to refresh your brain again see money is a thing be consistent about a job but I think to get to that point, it's taken a lot of kind of trial and error and a lot of forgiving myself for my less productive periods. As far as your creativity goes, do you write best at night? Do you write best in the morning? Does it matter what time of day it is? Do you ever wake up from a sound sleep with a great idea and have to, you know, feel like you've got to get there to the nightstand to, to write down a couple of sentences so you won't forget? The other question I have is because I this is kind of something that I've seen a lot. Uh, it's it's kind of a trope where you, you, you see the writer in front of the computer screen. You see the title of the novel and you see chapter one and then you see the cursor kind of blinking on and off <laughs> and there is nothing happening. It's just a blank page. Does that happen to you? <laughs> it absolutely does. <laughs> it depends on what kind of day I'm having, just in the sense that I don't force myself to write every day, but sometimes I wake up and I'm not a morning person at all. I definitely prefer to write at night. Um, I've had to remodel my routine a bit going from, you know, being somebody who lived by myself to kind of almost having more responsibilities and living with a partner and figuring out the situations of I should not stay up until 3am writing every night. Like that's not healthy for my relationship. That's not healthy for me or for holding a career. It's been interesting to kind of shape my routine as I've grown up. As for an actual routine, I do find that I write best when I'm not in my house, because when I'm in my house, there's laundry to do. I can be on my phone scrolling through TikTok and no one's going to judge me. I don't have to put on real clothing. I don't have to sit up. Um, and I found that especially during the pandemic, that's been really shifting. I've become much lazier as a person, <laughs> especially kind of getting back into the swing of things. 
it's been very important to establish spaces outside of my house where I feel comfortable writing, whether that's coffee shops or whether it's libraries, but I do my best work when I'm not sitting at my house. Cause I don't, I, I don't have an office. I have a desk in the corner of the living room, the whole staring at the blank page situation. It happens so frequently for me specifically. I feel like that always comes when there's a pressure to create as opposed to when I kind of just let things happen. Realistically, if I kind of take notes on my phone as thoughts come to me or make voice recordings and then save those up or even jot down notes, I always carry a notebook with me and have those things in the back of my brain. Then when I sit down to write, which is usually later in the day, then it's easier to kind of make it into something. I always say I need to let things percolate, but that's really true when I'm actively working on the first draft of a project. I can't just, you know, I can't just sit down at a blank page. I hate doing that. In fact, when I end a session, I'll often leave myself um, either in the middle of a scene or in the middle of a chapter, because then I'm not coming down to the beginning of something. I can finish it and then carry on the flow. Do you, do you put any stock in like a great opening line to your novels? Call me Ishmael, or it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. You know, I mean, do you put any thought into that or does it just kind of happen and is it something where you'll go back and you'll go well wait a minute from the way this is developing I think I can improve on that first sentence you hit on it there there's so much pressure on first lines and first pages they are often considered the most important part really I don't think I'm alone in this but that's the thing that I rewrite more than anything else like (laughs) my debut novel I have those first five pages pretty much memorized. I could probably recite it just because I've rewritten it so many times. That first line or that first paragraph, it's not going to be necessarily perfect or good the first time you write it because you don't necessarily know the story or the voice well enough to do it just straight from the top. So yeah, I think I've, I've come across this a lot with other talking to other writers as well is that we keep revisiting that first line in those first pages, like over and over and over again. That's the thing you consistently come back to. My first book, I swear, I rewrote it like at least 57 times. It's not necessarily something that comes immediately or easily. And I don't think there should be any kind of guilt from not having that perfect start because eventually it will come. Going back to something that you said earlier when you kind of decided at a young age that you wanted to turn this more into a career. I know that you got your agent before you left undergrad. What was that process like? Because speaking from personal experience, like I knew the week before graduation, finally, like what the next step was going to be for me and not a moment before that. So I have two agents and they're both wonderful. Um, I always joke that I conned them into working with me <laughs> just because one of them was my was my professor. He taught German at Pitt. I think think he still teaches German at Pitt, actually. (laughs) They've almost watched me grow up as a writer because I signed with my agents when I was 21. The way you go about getting an agent is you have to write the book first and then you send what's called query letters, which is like three to five paragraphs about your book and yourself, plus however many pages or chapters they ask for. So I had been querying a project for probably like eight months to a year and it was like crickets nobody wanted it everybody hated it what's going on nothing I got no requests 
or like agents wanting to read my work. So Uva was my professor at the time and I went out to him. I see you're an agent. Can you read this for me? Do I suck? And he read it. He was like, no, you don't suck. Why don't you send me the book? And I was like, ha ha, cool. I'm going to be a literary superstar. And <laughs> tore it to shreds. He roasted it so hard. He's like, this isn't working. And this isn't working. And this needs to change. So I wrote a new book, which was like gender swapped little mermaids. And I queried that a bit. And I was like, okay okay, I think this is all right. Um, I had a few people that were like, oh, this sounds good, but like, no. Um, and then I went back to him because I was still in college at this point. I was like perpetually in college and perpetually following him around campus, I guess. So I went back to him and I was like, hey, I wrote another book. Do you want to read it? And he was like, I mean, sure, send it to me. So I sent it to him and he ripped it to shreds again. I was like, maybe I just can't please this guy. I eventually got a little bit less angry and I opened his notes and I was like, you know what? Actually, on second thought, this is sure these are good notes. So I did the changes he suggested and I started querying again. And it was like immediately I had way more interest, like probably out of the first six queries I sent out, like five of those were requesting the full manuscript to read it. Maybe I was the problem all along. (laughs) So I emailed him and I was like, listen, I did your changes. I don't know if you want to see this again. If you do, here. (laughs) He read it again and he emailed me. I was literally in my Tudor England class in the Cathedral of Learning. Um, And he emailed me and he's like, hey, can we have a call about this? And I was like, have I hacked it? Have I done it? Have I, did I do the thing? And I did. So he and another co-agent, her name's Amelia and she's also wonderful um they offered on like the book to represent me (laughs) I was like oh yes this is amazing (laughs) haha I am again going to be a literary superstar and long story short we edited that book for a while did not sell it I wrote The Devil Makes Three which was at that point called Ink and that did sell it was a while in getting there um I was their client for at least a year and a half if not two years before we sold a book but it's it really changes things to kind of have someone in your corner who believes in you. That was just like a relief that I didn't have to query again. Still hanging in there. As you look forward in your career, are you going to be sticking with the horror genre? Are you looking to to branch out? I mean, the the horror genre is very popular and you could obviously make a very nice life for yourself just right there in that niche. Going back to my all-time favorite horror writer, which is Stephen King, He's had so many of his works made into movies. And he, if I'm not mistaken, has actually written screenplays for his own novels for treatments on the big screen. He does. And he also writes crime. Yes, yes, exactly. (laughs) One of my favorite Stephen King books was more based on history than anything else. It was called 112263. I loved that book for so many reasons because it dealt with real life situations and people that I knew an event that happened when I was 10 years old and left a mark on me. And I can still remember that so vividly. And then I saw the movie. And one of the things I have to say is none of the movies of Stephen King treatments have ever been as good as the book, including that one, which kind of disappointed me. Where are you on all of this? Is that anything that you (laughs) It's, it's hard because movies are like obviously a separate form entirely. There have been times when I have 
liked the book and liked the movie as separate entities. I think I Am Legend is a really good example of that because they're totally different beasts. And there are times, very rare times, where I like the movie better. I'm looking at you, Aragon. That's basically the only one, really. I would like to go forth and write other things. The whole thing about kind of diversifying portfolios and profiles and pieces of work is that you don't really get to say, oh, well, I some authors do get to say, oh, I'm going to write this next and it's going to be successful. I'm going to publish it. A lot of us, we don't really get to pick what fortune chooses for us next. So I would love to kind of branch out. Horror is always going to be my first love just because I really enjoy it and I like being a little bit spooky. I like the symbolism within, but I don't think I'm going to always just write horror. I would love to write a bit of fantasy. I'd love to write contemporary. I would love to get into adult horror too. So I think that's definitely something that I kind of want to focus on branching out into. I would love to get involved in film, whether that's writing for film or adapting something of my own for film. I don't think I'd be interested in TV just because just because I'm not good at it. I don't think I'd be good at it. That's again one of those things that you don't choose the film life, the film life chooses you. I think it'd be great. But I think also at the same time, there's always going to be something that does not translate, especially if you're going to be adapting a book into a movie or a TV series, especially since when we're reading a book, we're filling in so many details that goes away a lot. Completely. (laughs) Completely. (laughs) Completely. It's so funny because I think it's just different perspectives in that when you're writing a book, you're like, I have to trust the reader to be able to put these things together. And in film, I think it's kind of like I have to guide the viewer to put these pieces together. And it's funny because there are so many things that I would love to see being made into film. And then when it happens, I'm like, (laughs) if only I could read it for the first time again. I agree with that. So I think a modern author is now dealing with not a new problem, but a new way of interacting with readers um, that older authors maybe aren't necessarily used to, and that's being capital O online. Readers can really, you know, interact with you more often. Do you find yourself wanting to do that? Do you, do you want some of that separation still? Like, I feel like if I were you, I would just be like Googling my books all the time. I like the celebrity syndrome of, of like <laughs> wanting to know what everyone thinks. So I, I was just curious, like how you handle that, especially with prominence of like book blogs or Goodreads or things like that. You know how cats are like, oh, don't pet me. Oh, stroke me, actually. Oh, actually, go away. (laughs) Don't pet me. Don't look at me. That's how I feel like 99% of the time. If I had any advice for authors starting out, it would be seriously consider a pen name because there will be aspects of your life that you don't want (laughs) to be there, I guess. My name is my name. And, you know, I, I'm also an academic. I also do research. And I, it's not that I don't want to be associated with kind of my research and my academic life, but there are definitely some things that I want to talk about as an academic that studies young adult literature that I can't as an author. That's just a fact of life. And unfortunately, I won't be changing my name. I think that we are going to see a reckoning kind of with how I think the internet really has become kind of a toxic place for anyone who well everyone but like especially anyone who's putting something into this into the ether just the way things are tagged especially so like 
I'll see a lot of authors being like, please don't tag me in negative reviews. Because I mean, I look at things I get tagged in because if there's something that on Instagram or Twitter that I can be like, oh my gosh, thanks. I'd love to do that. But sometimes <laughs> the negative reviews just find you. And it's like, I don't want to hear about how this project that I worked on for 18 months is burning in your bonfire right now. Like, I'm not interested in that. But when I get tagged in it, it's like, okay, well, I've seen it now. So now I'm going to spiral a little bit. I think it's just, it's impossible not to have this deep-rooted anxiety that you might be hated by a lot of people who don't know you for no real reason because you've created a character that they just might not like. Yeah, and I think that we have to kind of remember that people who are making these things, they are genuinely people. And I know you might dunk on like, TV shows or book series because that's fun to do online and it's funny and it's appealing to your friends but like that could be seen by the person who really did invest a lot of time and honestly I really have not I don't go out of my way to read negative reviews I don't go out of my way to read anything really about my books it's very difficult to find that line between like thanking people for supporting you and engaging with kind of things that are going on around your work exactly and then also walking headfirst into the fire while covered in kerosene yeah it's definitely not lost on either one of us I would say since we're both in in media we so I totally understand where you're coming from and like I said if I had any more prominence like I definitely would find myself wanting to google and read everything even to my own detriment small potatoes like I cannot stress this enough (laughs) I am small potatoes and it's just I find this stuff like just innocently scrolling the interwebs I'll see something that's like I hated this and I'm like scrolling past that but like I can't imagine people who are New York Times bestselling authors or sell like thousands and thousands of books a year because it has to be so loud even if it's a small percentage of the things that are happening one more question for you are you now feeling an impulse to put use in words that you necessarily weren't doing over here in the states or has that impulse not come in to your writing just yet (laughs) funnily enough I'm doing the I'm doing the like you edit of my PhD right now so I'm spelling everything the British way so they don't kick me out it really depends like my day job is also using British English I like to think that I can switch fairly easily but sometimes I'm like (laughs) no (laughs) this has a you and I stand for it my biggest one is gray with an E because it just looks prettier. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a good assessment. <laughs> yeah, it's the hill I'm going to die on. <laughs> All right, Tori. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Um, this has been a great conversation. And do you want to tell our listeners where they can buy your book in the next six weeks? Thanks for having me. This has been so much fun. I am a huge supporter of indie bookstores. Um, So I would say bookshop.org, find your favorite indie, and you can usually find my books through that. Um, If you don't have a favorite indie, I will always be shouting out White Whale in Pittsburgh until I die. They're amazing. um, And they have a cafe now. So like the first thing I'm doing when I come to the US is getting a coffee there. Go ahead and buy them on Bookshop if you feel so inclined. Also, Barnes and Noble is great and they do run sales. No, if you feel so inclined, um, I have The Devil Makes Three, which is hardback and it's coming out in paperback in September for a lower price. Wowee. Not good for maidens. Except in Canada. (laughs) (laughs) Not good for maidens is coming out June 14th. 
in a hardback and then the gathering dark which is an anthology of 10 horror short stories by a variety of authors is coming out september 6th in hardback so a very quiet year for you (laughs) i'm gonna sleep so much in october (laughs) (laughs) all right well thank you so much tori for coming on the pod thank you That was a lot of fun and uh, very enlightening. You know, you don't always get to talk to authors, especially ones like Tori, who are really just starting in their career, even though she's got a, a book under her belt, another one out coming out and a third one on the way as well. Like you said, Gab, she is really she's really busy and already kind of prolific in her young career here. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think that for all the media that we've consumed during the pandemic, I feel like books are not talked about enough. So it was really interesting to kind of hear a different level of media and what it's like to have people online or just in general reacting to something that you made and you put a lot of time into, and it's not always, you know, positive, but sometimes it's great. And it must be really nice to read the really positive reviews or feedback that she gets considering all the time that she put into it. Yeah. I wouldn't spend a lot of time on the negative stuff. I agree. That'll wear you down quicker than anything else. It definitely will. Speaking of books, what are you reading these days? So I actually don't think I've shared this, but my, one of my new year's resolutions was to read more. Um, So my goal for the year is 36 books. I'm 11 books in right now. I've read some really great ones this year. I would say that I think my favorite fiction book that I've read so far was the Nightingale by Kristen Hanna which was a pretty long one, but it was about two sisters in France. The story was being told during the German occupation during World War II and the subsequent things and roles that they played in the resistance uh, without giving too much away. And then my favorite nonfiction book is The Body Keeps the Score, which is a book about how our bodies physically hold on to some stress um, of different things in our lives, ranging from just times where we have a lot of anxiety or stress or, or, you know, life and people who experience things like PTSD and the way that they have healed and the way that they react since we all sort of react when we're afraid. Um, And it was really interesting. It was a very scientific read, which is not always my favorite. And it took me a little while to get through it, but I felt like I had learned so much by the end that I would definitely recommend it. How about you? Well, you're making me feel like a slug uh, because uh, (laughs) although, you know, sometimes I have uh, two or three books going at one time and I'll go back and forth between them. My goal is to just finish a book (laughs) sometime this year, just get to the end, just get to the last page. But I have to admit, I'm, I'm not big on fiction anymore. You know, I talked a bit in with Tori and, you know, there about how, you know, I would read everything that Stephen King published. Uh, which is true, but I'm just not a big fiction guy anymore. I'm more nonfiction, although the kind of stuff that I read, I guess it depends on what side of the aisle you're on. You might consider it fiction. For example, the book that I'm uh, really well into now is is called The Betrayal, The Final Act of the Trump Show, and it's by Jonathan Carl, who's an ABC journalist. I find it fascinating. You know, I will read anything political that -hmm. comes out no matter who it's talking about, I just find politics fascinating. And I wish that I had, you know, taken poli sci in school <laughs> because I think I've wasted my career otherwise, because I'm just, 
I'm just so interested in politics and what makes people in it tick. So that's me right now. I'm trying to finish that book sometime before the summer. So that maybe I can get into a nice, I don't know, maybe Tori's book when it comes mm -hmm. out in June. Yeah. I mean, I feel like you're going to need a little bit of light reading, but Tori's <laughs> very uh, horror. So maybe that won't even be yeah. the light reading that you're looking for. <laughs> we will be back next week. We're going to be talking with a couple of people who have quit their jobs, sold their house, everything in it, and they're just traveling the world, gathering experiences. How many times have you thought about doing that? Okay. Recently? <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. I like my job. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll be talking to them on the next episode of the Encore Podcast. So until then, see you around. Bye, everybody.